G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. In just a short while, we'll open our talkback lines so you can join into our conversation as we talk about mental health and challenging times that we are in. Right now, mental health is at the forefront of the Australian conversation. Let me say, in New South Wales alone, it's reported self-harm and suicide attempts are up a staggering 31% for children and teenagers compared with last year. And remember, there was a COVID crisis last year too. There's now more awareness and perhaps less stigma associated with mental health than in recent history, but the statistics show that we have a snowballing situation on our hands. In Victoria, it's reported today that pop-up mental health clinics are now a priority as COVID cases increase. Well, our systems appear to be under threat, uh, under under this idea of uh, trying to meet a growing demand for mental health care and services. In addition, the COVID pandemic and the impact of lockdowns have further exposed the depth of our nation's mental health challenges. Well, our special guest today is an award-winning trainer and supervisor of mental health professionals in Sydney and also has a clinical practice. Dr Jenny Brown is preparing to deliver this year's new college lectures at the University of New South Wales, considering how nurture can prevent and ease mental health difficulties. I think we'll find this an enlightening conversation today. Dr Jenny Brown is Director Emeritus at Family Systems Institute. She is our guest today. Jenny, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's good to be here. Uh, Jenny, I mentioned this is the Australian conversation that's being held right now because the COVID crisis on one level is causing a physical effect. There is a mental health crisis on the other that's a little bit harder to deal with here even. Uh, What are your thoughts about this Australian conversation around mental health right now? Well, it's a great conversation to be having and that's one of the encouraging things in the field over the last couple of decades. As you already said, Neil, stigma is reduced. People are more willing to seek help and talk about mental health challenges. That's a plus. But as you said, our services can't keep up with the demand. There is an increasing crisis, particularly amongst young women and girls in terms of those self-harming stats. And certainly what COVID-19 and lockdowns increased stress and anxiety have contributed is they've amplified pre-existing vulnerabilities. We've had a mental health crisis in the world and in Australia over the last couple of decades, a 13% rise in mental health conditions in the last decade to 2017. 
So this is not new what's been brought out during COVID, but it's turned up the dial. It's really amplified it. So it's a very tricky but important issue to try and make sense of. How do we respond? Well, Jenny, it's our authorities who are responding to the challenge for young people, but is a mental health crisis, is this going, is this uh, age specific or is it happening across all the age groups? It is indeed, looking at the literature, and there's quite a lot of research that is being done during the pandemic interviewing large samples so there's one interesting article that i've explored that had over almost 14,000 australian respondents across the adult life spectrum and certainly during the early months of lockdown last year i'm sure it's been amplified again this year there were 27% of that group that experienced clinical levels of anxiety and depression during that time. So it's certainly an issue across the lifespan um, and self-harm, which is more specifically showing itself amongst younger females, not exclusively. Uh, That's a worrying statistic. But here's the piece that often also gets missed, Neil. This, this research showed that of their sample, nearly 30% of their respondents reported great optimism about the future. So that's not the dominant group, but that's just another picture to look at. So in my own clinical practice and anecdotally from the other professionals I speak to, there are sections of the population that are really vulnerable and we should be very concerned. And then there are groups of the population that have resilience to adapt and to remain hopeful for the future. Uh, interesting raising the idea of 30% of people have optimism for the future because that leaves 70% who might be feeling uh, the other way. Uh, this idea of fear-mongering, uh, the alarmism that we see around the challenges that we're facing, and it's not just COVID. There's all sorts of uh, areas, whether it's climate or whether it's uh, wars around the world. Uh, the idea of alarmism here, is this the sort of Thing that impacts optimism for the future, do you think? And is this part of the, the challenge for our mental health? Well, I'm always careful in these forums, Neil, not to give simple answers to what is such a complex issue. Um, alarmism, alarmism, all the noise of social media and anxiety, it's certainly a contributing factor. The, the piece of it that I'm most interested in, that I'm preparing to speak on at these upcoming lectures, is the importance of humans developing and holding on to their own personal agency, their capacity to set their own goals and to manage their own strong emotions themselves without dependency on others. So I think I want to raise the question for the mental health community and the broader community, are we, by throwing more and more professional resources out there, as helpful as many of them are, are we in some ways diminishing the growth of resilience of our population as people become more 
um, dependent on professionals, as families and church members become more afraid of mental health symptoms and want to quickly refer people out, are we losing the growth of resilience that can come from community and from people learning how to deal with life's challenges and disappointments? And these kind of agency building factors that are so important to developing hope and optimism. It sounds like when you have this idea of, I should never have a bad day, I should never feel down, I should never feel any sense of inadequacy or rejection, that if you do feel those things, all of a sudden you have a bad day and you reach out for medical help. Uh, Is this what you're talking about here? Because uh, this idea of building resilience... It might mean that uh, getting used to the idea that not every day is a good day. I agree with that, Neil. I think that's a problem. It's a good example of what low resilience looks like, is not having the tolerance for upsets in life. And I think that's a big challenge for us parents. And I'm a grandparent now, but just the challenge out there to allow children to deal with disappointments, not rushing to rescue them. Do we have a new generation of quite fragile, vulnerable young people who've been used to being quickly rescued and protected? That's one of the questions to ask. And the other thing to comment on of your example is it's not just the individual rushing off to see a professional. In fact, I think that's less likely to happen. I think it's the anxious family members or work colleagues even. As we've increased the awareness of mental health, have we inadvertently created this new problem of quickly outsourcing and sending children, sending individuals in the family off to a psychologist, a GP, a counsellor. Are we doing that too quickly? And is my profession that I'm a part of, are we inadvertently contributing to the problem by treating these challenges of life as individual mental health issues? taking people out of their family situations and and missing out on the opportunity to learn to be a more robust self in our families and in our relationships. Well, Jenny, let me bring in another dimension here because no doubt there'll be listeners who are saying, uh, you know, that's exactly what's happening in my family, in my community, and the, uh, those sorts of outsourcing ideas to find, find a quick fix for uh, what seems to be maybe something that will blow over quickly. But uh, let me ask you about the idea of self-care and uh, of personal well-being. Uh, I wonder how these things fit with our Christian view of what it is to be normal or whole or how you look at uh, the regular normal Christian walk. What are your thoughts here uh, when you contrast those things with what dimension our Christian faith brings to our mental health? Mm, It's a big and important question. I think that the emphasis on self, self self-care, having our needs met, soothing ourselves can, while there are elements of that that fit the view of just 
honoring our bodies and ourselves as image bearers of our creative God, created our creator God, and being worthy of care and, and honor because of that, the flip side of that is an over-focus on self-entitlement um, at the expense of loving God, loving our neighbor. So when I talk to people with a, a Christian worldview that informs me about their self-care, I'm always adding the dimension of how to care for self so that the self can bring more nurture to the important relationships that we're part of, not taking the self out of our communities. And I think we have a relational God, three in one. Relationships are so important. They're part of the heart of our God. So I just think that the conversation needs to broaden from self-care to self-in-community care. Is that something that naturally happens in church communities where you've got this interaction with people who are not only your peers but also generations up and generations down and this idea of nurture? I mean, this is something, isn't it, that we might even align with, align with discipleship because discipleship has a gentle nurturing quality to it as well. Are those aligned, do you think? I think so, Neil. And I do like the word nurture, hence the topic of the New College Lectures. If you look at the Oxford Dictionary, think about your definition of the word nurture. It is essentially about promoting an, a, an, a growth-producing environment. So it's not making the plant grow. It's creating the, the best environment, the soil conditions, the amount of light conditions. And think about that metaphor for the human. So I do think that it's important in our church communities and our workplaces and indeed our families to really think about what kind of nurture enables each individual to develop their own growth-producing capacity, not try to do it for the other. And But certainly there's so much in bringing a church family together, the community of believers that is nurturing, unless we add huge stress to it and then we cut off from each other, we become intolerant with each other, just like the rest of the world. So in churches, we've got the same challenges during a pandemic, and we're, of course, cut off from each other at the moment here in Sydney doing church online. It makes it difficult to stay connected. Yeah. But I, I hope I can just convey this idea of there's such potential in community for nurture, but if we anxiously over-nurture, we're getting in the way of what God intended, I believe, for the natural sense of mutual love and respect in community. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. 
We're talking mental health. Our special guest is Dr. Jenny Brown, and uh, Jenny is Director Emeritus at Family Systems Institute and uh, is a trainer of mental health professionals. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. And Jenny, why don't we take a call or two from listeners? Let's hear, first of all, from Sue in Underwood in Queensland. Hello, Sue. Welcome along. Hello, how are you? Very well, Sue. What are your thoughts? Just um, wanting to ask, uh, what's the best way to uh, relate to people who are going through mental health issues um, without causing more exasperation or um, causing them to be more distressed? Um, Because I find that um, even if someone, uh, even within your own family unit, if you try to empathise with them, sometimes um, they just basically shut you down and go, you just have no idea what I'm going through. Even though you're concerned about them, you want to talk to them about it um, and try to support them and let you know, let them know that you're there. But they can just shut you down and it seems like no matter how you try, it seems to exasperate. So I'm just wondering what the best way is to still be able to relate to them in that situation. What a great thought, Sue. Uh, Jenny, your thoughts for Sue? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Sue, and there are such challenges for carers, family members, friends of people who are really caught in a debilitating mental health episode. I think a couple of things to consider. One is there's no quick fix, and when we're anxious, the research is showing that one of the responses to feeling fearful in response to another is we move into over-helpfulness, trying to fix the problem, rather than giving people space to find their own, own way. I do encourage pe- pe- people to see the struggler as a person, not a patient, to keep relating to them as your daughter or your friend or your spouse and to be interested in them as a whole person not just focusing on their symptoms and to to walk alongside them in all of life not just focus on the problems that they're struggling with right now letting them know that we're there to listen and we're interested but not pushing an anxious trying to help and fix onto the person. But I really recognise that this is a great challenge for carers. Sue, is that helpful? Um, yes, um, but also too, I, 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 I wouldn't say that I would necessarily be um, trying to... I, I understand what you're saying about the anxiety thing and trying to quick fix, but sometimes uh, it can still be misconstrued by the person... Um, that you are actually uh, relaying and talking to, um, you know, via Facebook or whatever because there's distance between you. They're actually reaching out. They actually want help. They actually want someone to listen and you can tell that they're struggling. But if you try to empathise with them, they still sort of have a tendency to um, shut you down. And it doesn't seem... Yeah, it just doesn't seem to matter what you say sometimes. But, yeah... Well, Sue, I want to thank you so much for calling in. A valuable point yes, that you've made. Sue in Underwood, uh, thank you for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. We are talking about mental health. And let's take another call. Wendy is in Casino in New South Wales. Hello, Wendy. Welcome along. Thank you very much. Wendy, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I'm speaking as a uh, an retired school chaplain. I was re- I was school chaplain at my primary school here for some years, maybe five or six years. When I took on the job, the principal told me that at least a third of the children were suffering from anxiety. Uh, I don't know whether that's the case in every school or that was why we got to have a chaplain. But um, what occurred to me was, you know, it would be lovely to be able to, yes, I was able to nurture them, but I had to sign a form saying that I could not proselytise. In other words, unless they asked about Jesus or God, I couldn't talk about it and I couldn't pray unless they asked. So that was pretty (laughs) self-limiting for all of those children that came to me, many of whom would have just loved to have known about Jesus, and I couldn't say anything. And I've also discovered that um, um, that Lifeline, apparently, isn't allowed to talk about God either. So are we actually just giving TLC to people um, instead of actually giving them who, who's their great helper, who is Jesus? Wendy, what a wonderful insight, because uh, this idea of having good news... Uh, which is not just about salvation, but is also about working out the way the world works and knowing your place in it and being strong and courageous. And you're sometimes hindered from sharing your faith into those circumstances and you just become the self-help person or uh, or just applying a little TLC. Uh, Jenny Brown, what are your thoughts for Wendy and what's probably happening much more widely than just Wendy's school? That's a really good comment, Wendy, and certainly the problem of children's anxiety is rampant, so I'm not surprised that you were told that when you started as a chaplain at the school. Um, Interestingly, children's anxiety, one of the factors that is seen as contributing to the high incidence is overprotectiveness from within families. It's not just neglect but an overprotectiveness. So that's worth just being mindful of for carers as well and teachers and chaplains. I think it's very challenging in this post-Christian secular world to know how to represent the hope-giving news of the gospel in a respectful, gentle way. And when you're told that you can't do that in your work, and as a counsellor, there are restrictions that I have to abide by as well, by my code of ethics, to not use the disparate power position of counsellor and vulnerable counsellee to people to brainwash that's the fear out there and of course you would have that fear if your your child was seeing a professional or a teacher who was proselytizing something that was anti-christian so i think it's worth keeping that in mind and i would never underestimate just the impact of living the gospel in gentleness humility care calm not being really interested in the people that we're we're involved in i think let's not underestimate how god by his spirit works through that wendy in casino thank you so much for a fabulous input today Dr. Jenny Brown is Director Emeritus at Family Systems Institute. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. And Jenny, before we take another call, let me just come back to something you said in the first part of our conversation where you said that uh, there's an 
like an over-professionalising of mental health and we tend to treat our loved ones, our family members, our children, our teenagers like patients instead of people. This idea of treating people uh, as a person, not a patient, this is really wonderful insight you're bringing today. Well, I do think it's important. The, the area that I've trained most in is a theory called family systems theory. And I've really understood from that the importance of seeing how we're always affecting each other. Our relationships can be either health-giving or health-impinging. And to learn how to be in relationships is, I think, the missing piece in looking at our mental health crisis and learning how to be with strugglers in our lives and treating them as whole people and walking alongside them as whole people, not over worrying about their symptoms. It's hard to do, really hard to do, but I think it's an important thing to revisit in the mental health conversation. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. What are your thoughts around mental health, the challenges that parents and families are facing? Let's take another call. Wayne is in Mackay in Queensland. Hello, Wayne. Welcome. Hey, how are you, mate? Good, yeah, Wayne. Look, it's, definitely a, it's definitely a process, and it's, it's, I've been through it myself. But what I found out in that process is, yep, you cannot enable people. But you, it's important that you spend time with them. Before I go out and, and work with people myself, I, I pray for God for discernment, uh, for insight, and to give me wisdom as I work with these people. And, and I find that you, it, it's really important to, to find out whatever period of time it takes to look, look at the cause of it and, and give these people time to open up because we don't know what's going on in their lives. It could be from a, a drug-fueled... Uh, lifestyle that they've lived. It could be for uh, uh, things that have happened in their families. It could be from every and anything. And there's so many things there that people get messed up on. In, and, and, you know, oh, my, me personally, myself, because I come out of that area, I, um, I, I um, had to get worked on. So I just spend time with these people. I don't uh, care how long it takes. One-on-one, not try and save a whole, save or will help a whole lot of people in, in one go there because it can be very, very big and, and, and you can put yourself in overload. So just one-on-one, spend time with these people, look at the potential in these people that they don't see and, um, you know, gain their trust and just, yeah, go for lunch with them, go take them uptown, spend time with them, go for a walk along the beach with Ever it takes. Wayne, you're bringing some great uh, thoughts here on how you're relating. Yes. Uh, let's hear, Jenny, what are your thoughts for Wayne? Oh, I really appreciate Wayne sharing this tone of patient, kind, walking alongside, not getting to know a person well and appreciating that every person has their own complex story. And I just think relationships can be such a source of assistance if it's not an anxious, intense relationship. And Wayne is 
I think conveying that really well. I do want to put in here something that is very interesting to take note of is there's so much research about treatments and mental health and what works. I will say that across the board there are a lot of treatments that don't work for about 30% of people that seek help and a lot of people get better without any professional help. So I don't want to put down the value of the professional help. There is good help out there, but I want to raise up, as Wayne is doing, just consideration of the health-giving benefits of calm, patient, kind relationships. And this isn't studied in the professional literature, and that's noted. There just isn't enough research on the ways that non-clinical interventions, the community interventions, can make a difference to people's mental health. So thank you, Wayne. Wonderful stuff. Wayne, thanks for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Let's take another call. Stephen is in the Grampians in Victoria. Hi, Stephen. Welcome along. Um, yes, uh, g'day. Good, thank you. Um, I, I do like what Wendy said about how uh, don't, don't be just there for people during their bad times, but be there for them all the time, uh, like show an interest. Oh, I think that's right. important. But um, also, uh, you know, it's uh, we need to share each other's burdens. And one thing people don't do a lot of today is is um, actually be honest with each other about how they feel. Um, but also sharing dreams, like in my family. We used to sit around the, the table before bed and talk about what our dreams are and talk about angels and talk about heaven. And it was really healthy. You'd go to bed dreaming about it. Wonderful stuff, Steve. Uh, your thoughts here, Jenny? I think it's great to hear. It's great to reflect on the, our own experiences of family that were just hope-giving, uh, amongst some of the challenges, every family has its challenges, but your reflection, Stephen, on the things, those dinner conversations that helped with a hope-filled good night's sleep is wonderful to hear. Thank you. Steve, thanks so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let me take us in a slightly different direction here, Jenny. Uh, when we're hearing you uh, and your wisdom on all of this, uh, even terms like mental health, uh, because if you seek some help, all of a sudden you turn into a mental health patient. And uh, you're saying, hey, let's not treat people like patients, but like persons, like people. But is there a sense here, as soon as you seek some help because you feel anxiety or depression, that all of a sudden you're given a tag and that almost starts to define your identity as a patient? Is there some issue here that ought to be uh, just brought to light? Yes, I think there is, Neil. It's a tricky area to, to tread um, because people who are suffering from debilitating anxiety, all the symptoms that go with that, or depression, are truly suffering. So, And having a diagnosis can be quite comforting and assuring for people, just affirming 
just how difficult their situation is and their symptoms are. So diagnoses which are good descriptions of the symptoms that people are suffering from, they have their place. But you're right, Neil, they can also medicalize the breadth of human problems. And I think that is an issue out there. And there are certainly research domains at a high level. The National Institute of Mental Health research area in the United States is moving away from diagnoses as saying they're not useful for research because mental health can't be just put into these diagnostic categories. The overriding areas that are discovered as essential to treating mental health is improved emotion regulation, improved stress management, improved self-regulation. And that's backed up by emerging research. And I think we need to talk about that more rather than just the medicalized diagnostic labels. Do you think you have to get to the point, and of course every case is different and uh, you can't tar everyone with the same brush, but in a lot of these cases that you're talking about today and with perhaps children, young people who are being diagnosed as having a mental health issue, do you have to get to the point where you actually declare to your son or daughter you are not a patient. You're free from uh, your mental health tag. Is there some sort of pushback to this medicalization that as a family, as a parent, you've got to get to? I don't think there's a lot of value in declaring that verbally, Neil. I, I think that that can add to pushback and stress in the relationship. I think it's more an attitude to bring that just softens the relationship dynamic, it humanizes it again. So with the people that I work with, and I've written some books to help parents and people in general know how to bring their best to relationships so that they can live a, a posture in a relationship that isn't blaming or trying to change another, that is truly walking alongside. So you've got parents who are the ones who recognise there's a challenge with their child or their teenager and they're the ones who seek some help on behalf of the teenager and then then they feel guilty for that. They feel a sense of blame that it's all their fault. So when you're speaking to parents and they've sought some help, how do you address that? Oh, this is my central interest and a, a passion, if you like, in my work at the moment. I did doctoral research on parents' experience of their adolescence mental health treatment. And I did discover, not surprisingly, that parents whose children are struggling are highly sensitive to feeling blamed, Very, they're burdened with a sense of guilt and they feel sidelined in a lot of their children's treatment, kept in the dark about what's going on. And I think this is an area that needs a lot of attention. But what I discovered in my research, and I've developed a parenting intervention program in line with this, is that if parents could discover ways they can adjust themselves in their relationship with their struggling child or children. And they could see the hopefulness of contributing to 
the child's recovery of resilience and reduced dependency, then they lost their sense of blame and guilt for the past because they had developed a sense of, I can make a difference to the future. So I'm very committed to helping parents with that. There's a metaphor that comes to mind, and we don't use this in Australia very often because we don't have as much snow as they have overseas. But there's this uh, this idea or a tag on parents called snowplow parents who are <laughs> doing all the hard work to push the snow out of the way so their kids have a clear direction moving forward. And uh, uh, some people might say it's a little bit like a mollycoddling parent, uh, just always there looking after all the difficulties and so there's never a difficult day for their child and that of course affects resilience so when you talk about adjusting a parenting style if you uh, saw yourself as a bit of a snowplow parent uh, trying to make the way smooth for your children is that probably not necessarily a good idea absolutely and I think there's a lot of dialogue about that now the helicopter parenting is the other metaphor and I'm concerned that these labels can add more blame and confusion to parents who are already feeling out of their depth and confused, which fuels their snow plowing. The more anxious they are about, am I doing what my child needs? I hear all this advice on a child's developing brain. How do I know what's right? Am I going to damage them for life? No wonder parents are anxious and doing the snow plowing. So what I'm helping parents do is ask themselves, what can I change in the way I interact with my child that is completely within my control to change, that doesn't require me having to bribe my child, threaten my child. Those kind of trying to impinge on a child are not helpful for parenting results. And all the the parenting literature research literature and mental health is clear that good parenting is a balance of firmness, good limits and good non-anxious connection, calm connection. Taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Caroline is in Cairns in Queensland. Hello, Caroline. Welcome. Hello, Neil. Caroline, what, what are your thoughts? Um, I just totally agree with everything that um, is being said um, in this area because um, I've been through that myself and I got healed and delivered through the Bible. Um, I'm Aboriginal too, but my healing and mental health and that, I got totally healed, delivered through the Bible, through the Word of God, through, through prayer and through um, deliverance, as like when Jesus delivered and healed people. In the when he was on the earth, um, and I totally agree because today my grandchildren and the generation now, and my adult children, I I can't relate to them. You know, like try and tell them now that and when they start to express anxiety and fear, and when I um, tell them about how God healed me and delivered me. Um, and it's not that I'm against medical or doctors or anything like that. It's just my own personal testimony of how God healed me and delivered me. Um, and when I try and explain it to them, I can't connect with them in this, about the spiritual realm because to them, they just want to go to the doctor. 
and get medication. There's a secular way of thinking and it goes right throughout communities and even as you're talking about your own family, your own community, Carolyn, there is a secularised way of saying the doctor has more answers than God has for me in the Bible. But I'll I'll get Jenny's thoughts here because uh, what a wonderful testimony you have, Carolyn. Uh, Jenny, your thoughts for Carolyn? Yeah, thanks, Caroline. It is a wonderful testimony. And I do just affirm that there is nothing more nurturing than our God who had such compassion for us humans struggling here in this broken world that he sent his own son. Um, So there's nothing in secular psychology that comes anywhere near that hope-giving truth and experience and your challenge of how do you convey that to the next generation I just appreciate your heart for wanting to share that and there's nothing that I don't have a simple answer for you at all but I do think that trying to tell another person how you want their mind or their mood or their heart to change tends just not to work Um, but rather being a listener to them being able to share our own experience without trying to make the other person accept it it's a little bit like when someone um, hears that you're trying to lose weight and they start telling you what you should and shouldn't eat I can promise you that it doesn't assist (laughs) and we can be like that with our faith and the gospel because we so much want to share that message but can we share it in a way patiently a little bit like some of the other callers have talked about just giving it time letting your children and grandchildren know of the reason for the hope that you have and showing it in how you live your life and being there for them and letting them experience the health giving benefits of a loving mother and a grandparent praying for them in being willing to interact with them and committing them to the Lord Caroline Thank you so much. A wonderful testimony. And just what comes to mind, uh, because I sometimes think, how do these things fit together? Well, Caroline's saying she was delivered from the anxiety or the confusion around uh, issues she was dealing with. And sometimes we think, how does all that work with the Bible? Of course, God reveals himself as the same yesterday, today and forever. He's not changing. He's quite predictable. There is an unchanging truth. We can even call it an eternal truth and a truth that comes covered in flesh and blood and his name is Jesus and so he's not changing yesterday today and forever and for confusion that's an important element no doubt and Caroline thank you so much for sharing that testimony with us today on 2020 let's take I think we've got time for one more call let's hear from Jane in South Australia hello Jane oh good day I'm glad I just got in yes um, what Caroline just said about um, telling somebody to um, lose weight that is, is is sort of on par of what I want to say now I'm a Christian and I've done a six month course and so has my friend but when it's, when Christians counsel another Christian they especially if it's your close friend seems like they throw out you know 
the things that you should not say and the things that you should say. And I would scream if somebody told me, Jesus loves you. I would not tell somebody that. Of course it's true, but you have to learn to... And you can you can Google what should you say and what should you not say to a person who is depressed. I mean, I go to Bible study online, and uh, we do uh, yeah. Bible, I just said Christian Bible study. Yes, and uh, we tell each other, oh, we can't understand. I'm trying to understand. I would just love to hold you and stroke your hair and give you a cup of chocolate. And that sort of thing. And I don't know what to say. I wish I could say something. I know what I could say wouldn't do anything. But uh, that sort of... I admit you don't know what the frigging to say. It's Jane, better. let's get some thoughts here from Jenny because uh, this is so important because yes. we all might know someone who's going through uh, some of these uh, issues around anxiety or depression and wondering what to say. And Jane is just delivering here the truth. Uh, careful what you say. Jenny, what do you say? Oh, it's, it's great to ask these questions and grapple with them, Jane and other listeners. I've so appreciated hearing from people all around Australia while I'm sitting here in lockdown Sydney. But I, th I think what I'd like to put in here, particularly as we're coming to the end, Neil, is that if we always start with self, not the other, and I know that can sound selfish, but let me just clarify it. Start with our own walk with Christ, um, putting our effort into our own growth in becoming more like Jesus and working on ourselves first, not making a project out of changing other people. And, and even for those who, who are non-believers, I would say work on yourself in being less anxious, less reactive, less judgmental, and that's the best way to bring health to others rather than our trap of making a project out of trying to help or convert others. Wonderful stuff. Jane in South Australia, thank you so much for your call today. Uh, we do have to put a line under calls. Uh, time has run out. Uh, Dr. Jenny Brown has been our guest through this past hour. And Jenny, as I'm hearing your response, even in that last question, I'm thinking, Jenny, you are delivering beautiful wisdom. I mean, there's uh, there's wisdom that can sound mechanical, but you're delivering something absolutely beautiful today. And and I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share your heart with listeners. Uh, I did mention earlier you're preparing to deliver this year's new college lectures at the University of New South Wales. And you're considering how nurture can prevent and ease mental health difficulties. And and listeners will be thrilled to know that wherever you are around Australia, you can participate because you can be a part of the live stream of these lectures. And no doubt, Jenny, you're going to be getting into some deeper things than we've even been able to get into today. But uh, the new college lectures are on the 5th through the 7th of October. So still a, a few weeks away until they are on. But they're on each night, 7.30 p.m., you could be there in person if that's going to be allowed under lockdown conditions, but the live stream, no doubt, will be very important. And I want to tell listeners how they can be a part of the live stream. 
And I think you'll be impressed to be able to hear Jenny in full flight uh, talking through these things. New College, their website is newcollege.unsw, University of New South Wales, .edu.au and you'll find a link there for the lectures newcollege.unsw.edu.au admission is free but you do need to register by the 1st of October uh, Dr Jenny Brown thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020 Oh, thank you for having me Neil Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.